Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Shadi Manfreslan, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Professor Morgan C. Williams, Jr., an assistant professor of economics at Barnard College. Using both implied, empirical, and theoretical techniques, his current research agenda examines the economic consequences of crime and incarceration policy for racial inequality in the United States with topics ranging from the disparate impact of criminal history disclosure requirements among formerly incarcerated workers to policing reform. Professor Williams' research has been published in journals such as the American Economic Review Insights, in addition to enjoying support from the Russell Sage Foundation and the Robert Wood Johnson Policies for Action Initiative. Professor Williams is an affiliate of the Columbia University Population Research Center as well. Professor Williams is at Dartmouth to give a lecture titled Police Fourth Size and Civilian Race in which he discusses the first empirical estimate of the race-specific effects of larger police forces in the United States. Professor Williams, we're really excited to have you with us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, um, this what you're here to discuss, to me, sounds very monumental, and I'm actually pretty shocked that it, it, anything like this hasn't happened before, any kind of research hasn't been done, from an empirical standpoint, at least. Can you kind of talk about, give us an overview of the paper, and then maybe talk about how it fits with your, in with your other findings and your past research? You kind of mentioned that you also have done past work in influency reform as well. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I think a big part of uh, my research agenda, I, I always kind of say I'm a scholar race first and kind of, you know, economist second, everything else, you know, third. And so uh, a big part of what I try to do is try to find just meaningful ways to kind of understand race uh, within, from the economics perspective and, and just trying to see, uh, you know, how, you know, uh, the economic behavior might change when we kind of add in this sort of wrinkle uh, in ways that kind of go beyond just like, hey, you know, I'm doing a regression, I'm going to control, you know, for some sort of, you know, race kind of variable, uh, really kind of understanding the ways in which, you know, race can fundamentally change, especially within the you know context of, the, of crime and criminal justice, uh, can fundamentally change that sort of decision making uh, in ways that maybe people, you know, fellow, fellow researchers, policymakers, uh, et cetera, just don't think about. And so, um, you know, the particular paper uh, that I'll end up giving a lecture on today, uh, you know, and written uh, with my brilliant co-authors, Aaron Chalfin, uh, Ben Hansen, and Emily Weisburst, uh, we try to kind of do a little bit of that in which uh, there's been a great deal of literature, you know, kind of spanning the social sciences, uh, economics, criminology, sociology, elsewhere, uh, looking at the importance of, you know, uh, basically, you know, traditional policing, quote unquote, uh, to public safety uh, and to criminal justice. And a lot of the great papers that have kind of been out there, uh, whether it be Professor Mello's work here or before then, uh, you know, Evans and Owens uh, from the 2007 paper, just kind of, again, evaluating the impact of police employment on a number of different kind of criminal categories that we care about. Um, you know, those, those work kind of speak, you know, actually in with a great, a surprising amount of, you know, kind of, you know, um, uh, you know agreement uh, in terms of the ability of traditional policing to lead to reductions uh, in things like murder, uh, you know, robbery, uh, and other kind of very serious offenses. And so one thing that we, we kind of found interesting, and I certainly kind of think about a great deal, is just the idea that when we think about some of the kind of potential gains or benefits from public safety, especially when it comes down to reductions in homicide victimization, uh, well, black Americans, you know, in this country make up about 13% of the population, 50% of the homicides. That probably tells us uh, that, you know, race probably plays a very salient role uh, in kind of what the police can and cannot do to improve public safety. 
and so, you know, that was kind of one thing that was kind of on our minds and having this very kind of deep uh, and methodologically diverse literature and kind of speaking to many of those benefits. Uh, but there's also a number of different quote unquote costs, right? And so, you know, whether or not we're kind of, you know, disproportionately arresting and subsequently bringing people into the criminal justice system across racial groups is something that we care about. Uh, the extent to which we expose people uh, to potential criminal justice contact in disparate ways, again, something that is borne out in the data, at least from, uh, you know, just a kind of a summary statistics view. But uh, I think it wouldn't take much of a, a guess for most people to kind of think about what is the racial composition of most prisons. Uh, use of force incidents, I mean, it's a little less clear, but and it's not something that we directly kind of entertain from the paper. But it's, you know, something that's on everyone's minds, and we want to get some sense about to the extent that we increase the police's footprint uh, within a given community, uh, how much of that would alter, uh, you know, exposure to use of force in ways in which it might differ, you know, say for white Americans versus black Americans versus others. And so uh, we felt as if uh, we would, you know, probably, you know, do some good service uh, to this literature by kind of using some of the methods that, had, you know, kind of been used empirically uh, within this kind of literature that I've already kind of spoken to and just apply it to the, you know, kind of a conversation on race, right? And looking at, you know, whether or not, you know, the expansion of the size of the police force seems to kind of produce, you know, differential gains to blacks and whites in terms of homicides that are abated or other index crimes are abated, but also the types of arrests that are ultimately made. And uh, do we see more or less, uh, quote unquote, quality of life offenses, offenses for which uh, there's you know, generally characterized as misdemeanors, and there's hard to, it's hard to identify a potential victim, uh, and usually it's kind of you know something that's more so punished with fines and kind of lower ends of the sentencing distribution. Um, those you know sorts of kind of you know arrests you know have cost to them too, but you know there's many reasons for those things, and you know I don't we aren't able to kind of fully adjudicate that within the paper. There's also index arrests though that we also care about things that you know are related to very serious kind of criminal behavior. Uh, rape, robbery, murder, um, you know, grand larceny, just things that, you know, again, are very costly from a societal, societal point of view. But also, if you get those things wrong, uh, you know, you're going to have a lot of people going to prison for quite some time because they tend to have, a, you know, lengthy prison sentences attached to them. So uh, within the paper, we try to look at those various outcomes and try to get a sense about the extent to which, hey, in large cities to the U.S., uh, you, know, you know, to what extent does increasing the police force on average uh, lead to meaningful changes in each of those outcomes. Mm, absolutely. I mean, I guess the first thing that comes to mind for me is like what, I mean, what kind of challenges did, did you face with any to kind of aggregating that necessary information um, to kind of produce the results that you have? I can imagine that um, data bias could play a role and, and, you know, that each state has their own way of doing things. Um, I guess what kind of challenges did you face there and how did they you know, impact your conclusions? Well, I mean, there's a, I mean, I think just in general, right, with the criminal justice system, uh, anybody that does work within this area uh, will tell you that, you know, they're, you know, these data leave a lot to be desired, um, you know, in terms of their quality, uh, even though in many ways you've seen within certain aspects of these data, there are some very important research questions that you can still address. Uh, so for us, I mean, you know, all of the data that we pretty much use for the most part are publicly available. Um, you know, whether it be like the homicide data that we're able to obtain, you know, say from the FBI, the supplementary homicide reports or the arrest data we obtain from the uniform crime reports. Uh, those are things that are easily accessible and within you know, kind of large jurisdictions. I mean, we, we kind of focus on 242 cities over the 1980, I believe, the 2018 period. 
uh, in which, you know, again, those kind of large agencies tend to report these, you know, sorts of things fairly well, especially homicide, right? Because homicide is one of the things that we tend to have a bit more confidence in, in terms of its quality, just because, hey, it seems to match up well uh, with other sources. So, you know, in the case of the, you know, FBI data, uh, those data are coming from uh, police, you know, incidents reported to the police, right? And uh, at least on a preliminary basis. Um, in terms of, you know, the vital statistics data, on the other hand, those are coming from coroner's offices, people, you know, that have died and, you know, for which we want to be able to account the, for them within the vital statistics data. And when you use, whether you use, you know, the FBI data or the vital statistics data, they te tend to see, say the same thing, right? Which is a good thing. Um, the other kind of, you know, in terms of the arrest categories, the, you know, these things uh, tend to line up fairly well in terms of how well they're reported, at least among these large agencies. Now, when you get away from the large agencies, uh, then it becomes a bit of a different challenge, right? Because reporting tends to differ for various reasons uh, when you deal with, you know, smaller agencies that might not necessarily have the same resources. So uh, that's kind of one way in which we kind of get around it. But I, I do feel as if at least the data sources that we use within the paper, among others that I've mentioned, uh, they all have kind of been, you know, shown to be fairly reliable uh, within the re you know, type of research questions that we're entertaining. Okay, that's great to know. Um, I guess yeah, you, you mentioned that um, your your this is paper in particular, and your work in general has a variety of different conclusions about you know the role the role of um, police forces. How do you think that um, your work now and your most recent paper can inform um, kind of the social discourse around what police police forces should look like? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, a lot of, you know, uh, in, in, in many ways, uh, you, you'll always kind of get into these popular conversations and people will say, well, we need to reimagine policing, right? I mean, well, to me, reimagine implies that you have to imagine it first, which means you have to know something uh, about the returns to traditional policing, right? And so uh, uh, this is, you know, a good step. I mean, again, building on much of the work that I mentioned before, this is a good step in terms of understanding how this has an impact on racial inequality. Um you know, the, you know, the big part of kind of the story from us is more so uh, that, you know, in terms of this homicide victimization, it seems as if, uh, you know, while, you know, officers in, on a marginal basis kind of abate the same number of homicides for blacks and whites, uh, in per capita terms, the gains are about twice as large um, for black Americans and white Americans. Part of that could just be due to the earlier point that I made about the, dis you know, the, the disproportionate representation of black Americans in homicide victimization. Uh, but the other part could just be just the real effect, right, of, you know, police kind of doing some of the good work to solve you know, homicides a bit more abundantly, or at least to do some sort of, take some sort of policing strategy. We don't always know what it is, right? We, one thing we can't comment is on the black box of policing itself. Police agencies pursue different things. Um, but it does seem as if in one way or another, they seem to be reducing homicides uh, among a community that desperately needs that sort of kind of work, right? So that's kind of one part of the, of the, of the kind of the, of the picture. I will say a second part of the picture is that, you know, and one that kind of just kind of floored us when we, when we first started to come across these results uh, was the idea in terms of looking at index arrests, you know, again, these arrests for these very serious crimes. Uh, it seems as if the marginal officer seems to kind of abate additional, uh, you know, arrest or two or three uh, of these index arrests, while also uh, making few indirect, fewer index arrests, but also abating crime, you know, index crime, uh, which you know is an interesting proposition, right? Because they're you know they're leading to fewer index crimes in the community, but also they're making fewer arrests for them. Uh, so they're not arresting their way or incapacitating their way uh, out of this. It seems to tell us that there's um, there's a deterrence effect that might be at play uh, in which, uh, you know, officers through their presence 
and this has been shown through the hotspots of policing and some of the other work that's been done, through their presence, they can have a, an important effect, right? Just by kind of, you know, just marching on the street or kind of keeping, you know, a cop car, you know, on a corner. Uh, they're able to kind of, you know, uh, warn people like, hey, you know, uh, you know, we're here, so to speak, uh, which is perfectly in line for anyone that kind of, uh, you know, is familiar with Gary Becker's kind of seminal economics crime model, uh, that the probability of apprehension is something that plays a key role in that model. Um, but, uh, you know, that was an interesting story to us because tell, it tells us that perhaps there might be a double dividend here. Maybe we can do the expansion of the police force. Uh, reduce both serious crime and arrest. And, you know, that allows for us to kind of, you know, get the best of both worlds for many communities, again, that need that sort of public service. So that's the second component of it. The third component, however, uh, when we look at these quality of life arrests, again, things that tend to be associated with misdemeanors, uh, victimless crime, so to speak. Uh, it does seem as if the, you know, marginal officer makes additional, uh, you know, quality of life arrests, right? As opposed to the index arrest story. And when you look at specific offenses in which, you know, again, these officers tend to have a great deal of discretion, things like liquor law violations and disorderly conduct, uh, black Americans seem to kind of suffer disproportionately within this setting. And there's a number of different kind of, you know, stories that you can kind of, you know, talk about with respect to that finding. One thing you could say is that the police are just disproportionately kind of arresting black Americans because maybe they, you know, harbor some inner bias or there's discrimination at play. That's a story that you certainly can entertain. Another story could be that there's just a different demand uh, within many of these communities for this sort of policing and that, you know, hey, you know, I don't want marijuana smoke in the hallways or I don't want someone, you know, kind of disrupting, the, you know, our building at different times of the night and they just call the police to do something about it. So there's the demand part of it. And there's also the third part, which could be just offending, right? There's differences in offending uh, that you have to entertain, too, um, that results in some of this policing taking place. So, you know, policing, you know, is going to be contingent upon the types of actions that officers take themselves, but also the actions that civilians take. And so we can't really push that finding in one way or another in terms of kind of understanding the contributions of bias. But uh, it is something that we want to kind of note in this larger discussion about the potential benefits and costs. So in terms of kind of informing kind of social policy, I mean, there's been a number of uh, kind of other great studies that have shown that, hey, maybe kind of, you know, prosecuting these sorts of low level offenses is not going to be, you know, as beneficial to providing other sorts of kind of criminal justice interventions. Thinking about the work of Jennifer Doliak and, you know, uh, Anna Harvey and Amanda Agan and their kind of more, more recent paper within the pretrial setting. Uh, but there's also just been a lot of other great work that's since come along and kind of, you know, at least kind of added additional layers of context and uh, saying that, hey, you know, some of these additional arrests might not necessarily be the most efficient. So that's kind of where I see us kind of informing the kind of the larger social discussion. It's, you know, there are other things that we also care about as a society, um, exposure to use of force, as I mentioned before, we don't account for. Um you know, we don't find much in terms of evidence in terms of clearance rates, which, you know, could be just that clearance rates are very difficult to work with. Uh, but it also could mean that, hey, police departments still need have a lot more work to do and maybe should invest more resources and say, you know, the detectives and others that are responsible for clearing a lot of these crimes. So, um, you know, I think that there's a number of different ways in which you, we hope that future research will continue to build out from this particular understanding, uh, because I, I do think that this sort of conversation is necessary in order to help guide not necessarily dictate, but guide what sort of kind of policy reforms that we should be entertaining. Mm -hmm. In terms of um, meeting, you know, meeting that gap between policy and, you know, these, um, theory, like these empirical findings, um, in, in addition to the research that still needs to be done, 
are there any other challenges that you see in meeting that gap? Um, I guess like um, how wh- where does econ still have to go to kind of inform public discourse about race? Well, that's a good thing. It's not just econ on that front. I'm not going to put the burden mm, yeah, on us on that. No, yeah, definitely not. <laughs> but um, I would say, you know, you know, and people are often surprised when I say this, but I would say the openness to this kind of evidence-based conversation, mm-hmm. right? You know, what we, you know, kind of find is wasn't written on the tablets from Moses and passed down. Um, you know, is one, you know, study that, you know, we hope that contributes to a larger set of studies that speak to the potential benefits and costs of policing. Um, but I think that the, the main issue, you know, especially when we write this paper, you consider the kind of wider context of our results. Uh, you know, you always come across people that just want to kind of cherry picker, you know, kind of, you know, say, hey, you know, this is what this study is saying when we're, you know, you have to kind of take each of these results in context. A line from your 20 page paper. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the good thing is that you offend everybody, um, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> at least that's what my emails end up saying. But, oh. um, but uh, I think the, the bigger issue is that uh, when we're trying to find viable policy solutions, uh, you know, what we're saying is not necessarily that the policing, you know, police in its traditional form is a panacea for anything. Uh, you know, we should kind of entertain and experiment with other interventions. But when we see evidence that these things do not work, we don't dogmatically kind of hold on to them, whether it be in, you know, in the actual kind of policy setting or through our kind of popular discourse. Because a lot of times people just, you know, kind of retreat to their own policy beliefs. And it's hard to get any sort of meaningful kind of reform in place because people just have just their cemented expectations or priors and they're just not willing to entertain anything else. And so, you know, we're not, you know, we're not saying within this particular paper that this is the only way to go about, you know, kind of improving public safety. Uh, this is just one among many. Um, and, you know, maybe we should entertain violence interrupters. Maybe we should kind of look at youth summer employment. Uh, many of these interventions seem to have some promising results, some more than others. Uh, but the problem is that in, for many of these same interventions that are all kind of deemed as alternatives to policing, uh, even though in many ways they're also compliments, I, I think that, you know, uh, when we don't see the evidence line up, say, hey, you know what? Uh, we've invested a lot of resource in this. Either we can either do one of two things. We can either try to improve the research design and our understanding in terms of how we're evaluating them, or we can look to other interventions that seem to show more promise. Because, uh, you know, when we kind of look dogmatically at one set of policies versus another, uh, we ultimately miss out on a larger picture and, and look, you know, we, maybe we miss out on some other policies that were right there. Uh, but we just were so kind of stuck in our corners that we just did not consider them fully. So I, I think that's kind of a big thing for me is just getting people to be a bit more open to dialogue, no matter where you sit on this kind of, you know, I, you know, this position kind of ideologically speaking, uh, because at the end of the day, you know, you know, as a professor, even though I'm a black American, uh, I'm not the one, you know, that's kind of in the crosshairs of kind of these sorts of kind of, you know, issues when, you know, public safety goes wrong. Right. We're talking about many communities uh, throughout the country that we're making decisions for and they're looking to us for our expertise and guidance. And dogma doesn't really help us in that front. Yeah, it seems like both, um, you know, from the policy side, from the social discourse side, from the academic side, right, like everyone can benefit from constantly having an open mindset when challenge, you know, what is currently thought or ex- what, what the current thought or course of course of discourse around certain issues. Yeah, definitely. Um, I want to flip that question, maybe. Um, and I guess. What do like the current discourse? What does the current discourse about um, about about race and social issues have to have? What what can the field of econ, maybe wider the field of academia, um, benefit to benefit from that from that discourse? 
in terms of race? Um, race and, and any any social issues that you kind of re- explored here through your work. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, you know, um, I, I think a big part of it uh, in terms of race, right? Um, you know, I, I think a big part of why it's so um, such an in, look academically such an interesting thing to kind of entertain, in, in addition to socially. Uh, because it factors into and permeates so many of our kind of institutions historically, our laws, uh, you know, in ways that are just so deeply entrenched, you know, throughout our country's history, um, or elsewhere for that matter. Um, uh, you know, one of my uh, kind of uh, mentors and uh, dissertation committee members, Gun Lowry, also, you know, always say relations before transactions. Uh, and, and much of kind of what he was ultimately saying was that, you know, well, you know, on the one hand, you could take some of these very kind of formal human capital models, and you know, I've certainly done so myself, and apply it to many of these certain social circumstances. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you could also understand the fact that people, you know, do not necessarily kind of operate in these kind of very kind of very rigid ways in terms mm-hmm. of kind of maximizing their own, you know, welfare or potential. Um, I think uh, the idea that people, you know, have relationships with one another, beliefs about who you are. Um, you know, who you live with, you know, what types of, you know, you know, exposure do you have to, you know, social norms and, you know, uh, you know, differences in education and, uh, and other sorts of things that can ultimately influence, you know, you know, you know, one's human potential. Uh, those things, you know, probably can be more important, if not the most important issue that we can tackle at this very moment. Uh, because a lot of, in many instances, and this is kind of to get back to your original point, in many instances, when we are kind of having this larger social discourse, it's zero sum, right? Either it's all discrimination or it's none, uh, or you know it's all bias or it's none or something else. Uh, when the truth is probably somewhere in between, if, if that's going to be the case, if there's going to be you know uh, ways that kind of uh, in which you know these sort of biases kind of affect uh, the inequality you know that we ultimately see at the end of the day, whether it be racial inequality or elsewhere. Um, then again, those are going to be missed opportunities, right? I mean, so, you know, one instance, one way we could kind of think about it in which he's put forth is that, you know, there's, you know, kind of the idea that, you know, we could have, you know, discrimination, say, in contact in these sorts of formal interactions, you cannot eat at my diner or, you know, blacks only water fountain. Uh, those things could be very kind of very formal and explicit through some sort of interaction or some sort of transaction. But in terms of, you know, interactions um, and, you know, the ability for one to kind of be exposed to one another uh, in ways in which, you know, allow for us to kind of, you know, maybe find other ways to kind of prosper or address inequality, uh, those discrim- that discrimination and contact can actually have, uh, you know, even more profound effects, right? And also could be a function of certain sorts of discrimination that we've seen in contract and in contact, excuse me, in contract in the past. So one thing that I often kind of uh, think about within, say, like the criminal justice setting or the crime setting is that a lot of times, you know, when you want to have a discussion about things like, you know, disparities in homicide victimization or other forms of very serious crime, uh, it either has to be a root causes explanation or it has to be a discrimination story. Uh, there's never an opportunity to look through other prisms, say improvements in education, improvements in, uh, you know, certain soft skills that are provided through cognitive behavioral therapy, um, even improvement in institutions responsible for kind of providing those sorts of services or goods. Uh, you know, the education system, the, you know, even the prisons and, and jails, they have a responsibility for improving individuals in ways that escape those very narrow co- points of views. Uh, about how exactly uh, we should be thinking about these sorts of inequality. So, 
Um, I, I do feel as if, you know, uh, whether it be economic, sociology, philosophy, uh, criminology, elsewhere, you know, other disciplines, no matter what it is, I think the kind of the understanding or the discussion of race can improve not only some of the kind of social inequalities that we're interested in addressing, but also can enrich in the sort of kind of uh, the, the, the intellectual uh, kind of discourse that's taking place within many of our, our campuses here. Absolutely. That's a, that's a really um, great point to emphasize. Um, uh, on that note, I want to thank you again, um, Professor Williams, for being here today. Um, I really enjoyed our chat. Um, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Hemlock. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. If you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.